So if you uh, haven't done it, you probably ought to read C.S. Lewis. Here's something that he said in a little book of, that were radio addresses during World War II. He was talking about heaven, and here's what he said. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all of them left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in, C.S. Lewis said. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Toward the end of this essay, he said, in this little chapter of this radio address, he said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall, which I shall not find until after I die. I must never let that desire get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help other people do the same. C.S. Lewis was saying one of the most important things about people is that they have alive in them and that they keep alive in them a desire for heaven. But then he also said this. He said, but most of us find it very difficult to want heaven. Well, I know, I know that you know that you're supposed to say that you really look forward to heaven a lot, but if you're like I was when I was younger, the descriptions of heaven sometimes made it seem kind of hard to want, kind of metallic, kind of hard to imagine, even though I was told I was supposed to want to go to heaven, it was a lot easier for me to want to go to summer camp. I'd been there before, and I knew that at nighttime, after chapel, they would open up the canteen, and with a little punch in my ticket, I could get Mountain Dew, which I was never allowed to drink at home. But heaven, on the other hand, sometimes it's just hard to sink your teeth into that. C.S. Lewis said that's been true with a lot of people, except maybe for the fact that it's a place where we know that you can go to be reunited with people who knew the Lord. Huckleberry Finn, in the Adventures of Tom Sawyer book, he's, Miss Watson says to Huckleberry Finn, uh, he says about Miss Watson, Huckleberry Finn says, she says, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said, all a body would have to do in the good place was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So you see, I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer was going to be there. And she said, not by a considerable sight. And I was glad about that because I wanted me and Tom Sawyer to be together. Well, it was hard for Huckleberry Finn to imagine heaven. C.S. Lewis said it's hard for Christians to imagine heaven. But the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to have a robust desire for heaven. And that brings us to a great place in the Bible because... What we have now is a place in the Bible that describes heaven. Let me tell you one of the reasons why I think it's hard for us sometimes to want heaven. It's hard for us to want heaven, one reason is, because when we read the Bible, we overlook something that's in our text today that's really clear that many Christians overlook. And here's what it is, and this helps us a lot. Here's what it is. Heaven is not up there it's not out there in our text today what we're going to notice about heaven is that in the in the eternal state the new heavens and the new earth and the new jerusalem heaven is coming down to a new earth a place with streams and rivers and fruit trees a lot like our earth only lots better a beautiful little novel called Gilead. In the novel uh, by Marianne Williamson called Gilead, she puts words in the mouth of a preacher who's dying. And the preacher is saying, 
They say to him, how do you imagine heaven? And the, and the old preacher says, here's what I do. I, I imagine the most beautiful place on earth, and then I multiply it times two. That's how I imagine heaven. He said, I would multiply it times ten, but at my age I just don't have the energy for that. Now, that was biblically sound because in our text today, which is the second from the last and a part of the last chapter of the Bible, we have a vivid description of heaven, which includes some things that are very much not earth-like and some things that are very earth-like. So one of the ways, as we begin this, one of the ways that you can look forward to heaven and want heaven is by adding and subtracting and multiplying and dividing. Now I'm going to tell you everything I know about math right now, okay? Add, subtract, multiply, and divide, okay? So first of all, heaven here is a place on earth when heaven, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new Jerusalem come down to to a new earth after the earth has been renovated by fire, right? We have the new earth. Imagine earth, right? And add this. Add the presence of God. So you have earth, add the presence of God. Add. Subtract. Subtract all sin, all the curse. There's no, we're going to see that in our text today. There's no curse. There's no sin. There's nothing that makes it unholy. Nothing bad. Add God. Subtract sin. And, and then multiply like our friend in Gilead says. Like, since God made it perfect, feel free to multiply and then divide to share that with all kinds of other people who know the Lord. And now you're starting to get a little bit of a taste of what heaven's like. And with that in mind, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 21, if you brought your Bible. And our text is Revelation 21 and uh, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. So this is a holiday weekend, and we have lots and lots of time today. I just thought, and I'm sure that you don't have anything else that you're planning to do today. Just kidding. Anyway, Revelation 21 and 22 is going to be our text. Now, when you read this, you're immediately going to ask the question, okay, is that literal or is that symbolic? Is that literal or is that symbolic? Sometimes Bible students will say, is that literal or is that symbolic or is that allegorical? And here's what I would say. It's literal and it's symbolic. What's being described is a literal place and literal things about a literal place that are really going to be and they're really going to happen. And all of these things are symbolic. It's very obvious that it's symbolic. Very obvious when you read through, the symbols are actually, some of them are decoded. Is it allegorical? In other words, is it a story that represents a true story? And I would say, no, we reject the allegorical method. It's not a, it's not a fanciful, legendary fantasy that represents a truth it is a truth about a real place filled with symbolism so when i'm a boy we don't get out much we're just a poor family but when we get on our annual vacation and my dad tries to put as much into that annual vacation as he can he tries to put geography and culture and history and music appreciation and family revival and visiting college. He tries to stuff all of this into that, that week of vacation. We went through the American South and, and we visited. We went over, we visited the, the nation's capital, then we made our way through the, the South and, and, and we went to the Smokies. What I remember about the Smokies especially was how stunningly beautiful they were. You're on the major highway, right? You're on a four-lane highway and all four-lane highways look almost the same anywhere in the world pretty much. Then you get off the four-lane highway and you make your way through the Smoky Mountain, what is it called, the Smoky Mountain National Forest or Park or something, right? And then there are, this, there are these unique features of the park. They're like stone places where you pull off. My dad would be lecturing us. You know, he would be saying, please don't stick your finger in your sister's eye. We're never going to be this way again. Look around a little bit. You know, look, don't, don't look down. Look up. Look at, and, and oh, wait a minute, here's a pull-off. And what he would do is he would pull off in this place where they have this native stone, and there would be a place that would be an amazing vista, a beautiful thing to look at. And we would pull off, and we'd all get out of the car, and we'd fill our lungs with mountain air, and then we would just look out over this vast blue landscape. That's where we are today. We just made our way through the tribulation. 
We just made our way through the great tribulation. Locust and fire and demons and all kinds of bad things. And we finally now have made it to this place where we can pull over and look. And when we get out and when we get our lungs full of air and when we look at what we see, it's just going to be thrilling. It's going to be shocking. It's going to be wonderful. So are you eager to read it? Good. So let's go now and let's read the Bible. Revelation 21 and verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'm in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me, and he talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of twelve, the twelve apostles of the Lamb. He who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. The city was laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. And the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all day by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. 
leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve them. They shall see His face. His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Told you it was good stuff. I want you to notice some new things. This uh, message is when heaven and earth are one. I want you to notice the new things in the passage. In verses 1 and 2, there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. In, the, in verses 3 through 8, you have a new people. In, in verses 9 through 27, you have a description of the new Jerusalem. And in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, you have a new paradise, thanks to Warren Wearsby for that little outline right there, by the way. You have a new paradise. How cool is that? Think about that. There's a new heaven, a new earth, a new people, a new Jerusalem, a new paradise. God says everything is new. Now let me show you how this passage works. When you, when you read through the passage and you watch for the, for the scenes to shift, there are like three scenes. The first one is there's an amazing vision from earth. John's first thing he's going to see is from the perspective of earth. And this is, if you remember... The way the whole material in Revelation is organized is it keeps shifting back and forth from the view from heaven, the view from earth, the view from heaven. So his first thing in verses 1 and 2, he sees an amazing vision from earth. And then in verses 3 through 8, there's an amazing announcement from heaven. You'll see that verses, uh, verses 3 uh, through 8. And then you have uh, an amazing tour with an angel, which starts in verse 9, and goes all the way through. So you have these three amazing things. You have this amazing view from earth, if you will. You have this amazing announcement from heaven with a number of things. By the way, the announcement from heaven has two speakers. Did you notice that? There's this loud voice that's unidentified, and then there is a voice from the throne. So if the voice from heaven is speaking or a voice from the throne is speaking, we want to be paying attention to that. Let's, go, let's take a look at this as we just kind of run through this passage and see all of this. This could be a lifetime of study, but just to stimulate your appetite, to pull over for a minute and pull the car over and get out and get some fresh air in our lungs and look. Just look at it and see how beautiful it is and how compelling it is. And, and I'll tell you this before we do, and that's this. Why was this written? It's written to people who are going through hard times. It was written to people who were going through hard times. And Jesus wanted them to know that they were winners in Christ, overcomers, that ultimately they were going to win in Christ. Anybody here going through any hard times right now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this will be good for us, won't it? I want you to remember as we study this that it's kind of poetry kind of poetry. It's full of lovely language, beautiful language. It's not to be overanalyzed. We certainly can analyze it, but, it, but it's not to be overanalyzed. Do you remember when you were in, in, in junior high biology or high school biology and you wanted to know how a cat worked? Huh. I don't know why they do that, but, but you want to know how a cat... What did you do? You killed it, which makes perfect sense. Oh, there's the little cat liver. There's the little cat guts right there. Oh, the problem with that is, sorry if you're a cat lover, this is a painful illustration for you. problem is you've got to kill the cat to, to understand it. Never do that with Bible, especially these beautiful, poetic, lyrical parts of the Bible. Don't press them so hard that you kill them. Don't overanalyze them. Remember, don't tie them to a chair and beat them with a hose to get the meaning out of them, right? It's poetry. It's poetic. But rather allow the lyrical quality of it to kind of leap into your heart. Right? All this beauty and all these wonderful, one-of-a-kind kinds of things. God is trying to ravish your affections. He's trying to capture your imagination. He's trying to win your heart with this. So allow him to do that. Lean into this. So there's this amazing vision from earth. In verse 1, the old heaven and earth are replaced. And, there is, and the Bible says there's no more sea. And if we took time to go back, and we took, by the way, there are large bodies of fresh water 
but literally says there's no more sea. I do believe there's a great symbolic significance to this because if you read through from back to chapter 20, you'll notice that the sea gives up its dead and then it's the abyss and then the abyss and the sea in the Hebrew mind and in the culture of the time was tied to evil and tied to darkness and tied to demonic things and the abyss, it's almost like the abyss has served its purpose and it is no more and there very well may literally be no sea. That's what it says. And then in verse 2 it says the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven from God looking like a bride. It's like, you know how you swing those doors open and there she stands and everyone just sucks in their breath and mom stands up and everybody stands up and the groom, if he has you know, any sense at all, he cries, right? This is the picture. Now look at this. There's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God like a bride. Now you have an amazing announcement from heaven in verses 3 through 8. The voice says a number of things. Are you ready? Here we go. In verse 3, the voice says, Now I will dwell with men on earth. That's a big deal. Because you see, this is the, this is the idea of, the whole idea of God created men and women to have fellowship with them. And that fellowship was broken because of sin. And they set about the redemptive program in order to restore fellowship so that men and people, men and God and men and women can live together. And this is what it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their guide. So my son Daniel and his uh, fiancée, Caitlin, have been engaged for quite a long time. But next week at this time, they will be on their honeymoon. Right? And they, they've been, their, their courtship, their dating has all been from a distance. So they talk on the phone. They Skype. Right? It's not the same as it's going to be when they get married, right? And so it is with our God. You know, we, we, we hear about him, whom having not seen we love. We read about him, and what we read is wonderful. Can you imagine how when the scales of our heart are lifted and we actually see him and we're with him, the voice said, I will dwell with men on earth. The voice, verse 4, says, there's no more sadness. I'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Former things have passed away. You can put a lot of no mores in there that cause pain, right? The voice says, verse 5, make everything new and fresh. Behold, I am making everything new, is what the voice says there. In verse 5, God speaks. And he says, John, are you getting this down? Are you writing this down? This is true. In verse 5, God speaks. You can count on this, he says. Write it down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In verse 6, God speaks again. I'm everything you ever needed, and I'm everything you ever will need, God says. He says, verse 6, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We'll talk about that more a little bit. God says, I am everything you ever longed for. And I am everything you will ever need. And now you will know it. That's what the voice now from God is saying. In verse 7, God says, I want to be as close as we can possibly be. Right? The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. He will be my son. The overcomer, that's a key word in Revelation. The one who overcomes, the one who by the work of God within him or her perseveres to the end as a genuine saint of God, will find themselves in this father-son, father-daughter fellowship with the Lord. The one who conquers will have the heritage that I will be his God and he will be my son. That is verse 7. In verse 8, God says, you will be safe from sin and from sinners. And then it has a list. People that are characterized by cowardice, faithlessness, detestable, murderers, sexually immortal, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, they will have their place in the place where Satan and the demons were cast, the eternal lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's horrifying news for them who don't know the Lord. It's really wonderful news for us because now we're finally in a place where there are no, there is no sin There's no defilement. There's no unholiness. Now you have this amazing tour with the angel that starts there in in verse 9. There's this amazing tour. Uh, Revelation tells us that 
heaven is really coming to earth, that heaven and earth are one. Again, it says it. It said that uh, in, in, in verse uh, 1, uh, verse uh, 2, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls with the seven last plagues came and talked with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. He carried me away into the spirit, in the Spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. What's it going to be like? There's a hint about what heaven is going to be like. That part about earth multiplied. Heaven comes down and rests on the new renewed earth. And we'll live there with glorified bodies. The Bible says our glorified bodies will be like Jesus' glorified body. The Bible says that when Jesus in his glorified body was resurrected and he met with his disciples, one of the things that he did was he ate with them. He made a breakfast with broiled fish and he ate with them. He had a, a regular a body that could interact with, with people who didn't have glorified bodies. And yet it was his glorified body. And it involved earthy things like fellowship and talking with people that you recognize and eating things and making breakfast. Does that help you get your, kind of sink your teeth into, into what heaven is going to be like? It's like earth, only lots, lots, lots better. It's like imagine the most wonderful, the most beautiful place on earth that you've ever been able to imagine, right? Add the presence of God, remove the curse and sin, right? Multiply times, it's perfect, and then divide it by share it with everybody, and now we're starting to get a feeling for why wouldn't we look forward to heaven, why would, why, would we, why would we be overwhelmed with the problems that we have here, which are light, momentary, temporary, right? So there you have the things. that Here's the tour. Okay, here are the elements of the tour. In verses 9 through 11, you have splendor and light. I will show you the wife, the bride of the Lamb. And, and you've got to remember the context. In chapter 9, 17, what did you have? You had this uh, horrifying picture of a harlot who's judged, and now you have this gorgeous, beautiful picture of a bride. And, and, and you and I are on one of those teams or the other, right? That's the way it works. Then in verses 9 through 11, you have this splendor and this light. And, it, and over and over, like in verse, verse 11, having the glory of God, her light was like the most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, kind of like a diamond is the idea. And, and whenever you talk about heaven, you talk about light, you talk about glory, in verse um, 22, no temple. Verse 23, no need of the sun or moon to shine in it. The glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Verse 24, the kings walk in its light and bring their glory and honor to it. And verse 26, they bring the glory and honor of the nations to him. In chapter 22 and verse 5, there will be no night because they need no lamp or light. For the Lord God gives them light. There's something about this light. That glory thing goes all the way back the back through the Bible, and you need to understand, right, that the glory of God is like the, the expression or essence of all that he is, and it's, it's seeing the glory of God that saves us, it's fully seeing the glorified God that puts us into our glorified state, that cleanses us and gives us a glorified body and our glorified essence in heaven, the, 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 the full revelation of who God is, the full seeing of who God is, is tra- has a powerfully transformational effect on us so the light is no small thing it's a very big thing it's the expression of all that god is and he shares that glory there and and the verse 12 says and she had a great high wall with 12 gates so you have splendor and light in verses 9 through 11 in verses 12 and 13 you have a description of the walls and the gates they're high walls or 12 gates three on each side on the gates are the names of the sons of jacob and the tribes of israel and every gate is guarded by a scary angel it's just fun, isn't it? A very impressive angel is guarding each of the gates. There's an old song we used to sing, He the pearly gates will open so that I may enter in. That song threw me off just a little bit because I'm a kid and I'm imagining pearly gates. What's that like, pearly gates? I'm imagining a gate with a lot of little pearls. That's, misread, that's misreading the text. It's not true, right? I'm a farm, kind of a farm kid. I visit my grandpa's farm and my grandpa was really... Um, really, really frugal, and so he didn't have production gates that you buy down at the farm and fleet. Those would have been too expensive. He made his own gates, 
You get up to the west pasture and you get off the tractor and he would say, hey, you want to get the gate? And I would jump off the, I'd jump off the fender of the tractor, I'd jump off the tow bar and I'd run over there and he'd have a piece of twine. So here's what the gate was like. It was made by strands of barbed wire, right? Four strands of barbed wire and it had pieces of locust poles, maybe four to five pieces of locust poles going this way and then at the and then it was affixed to the post on this side and this side over here it had a little loop made out of twine baler twine that you just looped over the the post on the other side he would say you want to get the gate and i would jump off the tow bar and i would go unhook and i'd drag it over and i would lay it down and then my grandpa would drive the tractor through, and so the cows wouldn't get out. I'd go back, and I'd, I would put it back, and I'd hook it back up. And so when I heard about pearly gates, I'm trying to put that together, kind of like, I guess you got this little gate thing, but it's not barbed wire. It's pearls. That's not what the Bible is saying. Here's what it's saying. This is just so crazy. Every gate, think like gate to a major city, right? Huge, like arch gate. Every one of those gateways... Those huge, arched, huge gateways to the city is made out of one pearl. Somebody said, that's a big oyster, right? Wow. How does God do that? I don't know, but can you imagine a gate, an arched gate, not being made out of concrete or stone or marble, but being made out of one glistening, amazing pearl? Every place you approach the gate, you've got this angel standing there that's beautiful and ominous and and frightening and, and terrifying and awe-inspiring and worship-inspiring and a gate, the big arched gate that's made out of a pearl. And then you've got foundations that are all kinds of different precious stones. And the whole thing glistens like a diamond. We can't imagine this. And then it has within it the properties of a garden paradise. Because that's what the scriptures say. Wow. Then you have, um, you have the size. It's like 1,400 miles cubed. Just the city now. That's not the new earth. That's like a huge, 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 huge city. And I believe we'll have dwelling places in the city and dwelling places on the earth as well. And then in verses 18 and 19, it's construction, mostly gold, jasper, diamond, and gold that conduct great light. The building materials, the stones echo the stones and the symbols in the priest garment in Ezekiel 38. It ties the, this ties the original garden to the ultimate garden. And you're going to see this over and over again, that you have things in the garden in Genesis that are redeemed, resurrected, renovated, and they're completed in the new paradise, in, in the new garden. This is, this is one of them. You have a, a description in Revelation 17 of the harlot's cheap, gaudy attire, right? And, and then you have the, the, the original garden, the ultimate garden, the harlot and the bride. And then you have the description of the bride and the beauty of the bride and the purity of the bride. In, in verse 22, you have its glory. Again, the new heavens and the new earth have glory. There's no temple, verse 22, because the whole earth will be the temple. For the first time ever, the entire heaven and earth is one temple. So the throne is in the middle, and then the whole thing is a temple. The sun and moon are not needed, verse 23, because the Lord is the light. Then the, the, there are no rivals, verses 24 through that's 26. Notice that. Um, and the nations of those who are saved will walk in its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. Gates will not be shut at all by day, no night. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And by the way, if you're bringing your, your glory, your honor, your products into God, and there are kings on the earth that are, that are serving under God, then think about what that means in heaven. There's, there's a structure of authority there are people that have jurisdictions, the people that, are, that do the kinds of things that you do, that you love doing, uh, ordering things, serving, organizing, creating things, crafting things, bringing these things. These are the kinds of things that we will be able to do in this perfected state in heaven. These are all implied by that. In verse 25 and verse chapter 22, verse 5, it says they're, 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 the gates are not closed at, at night. It's a picture of total security, free to safely come and go. I met a wealthy man in Mexico one day, very, very wealthy. Met him at the top of this restaurant in Monterey, and I was just an, I was just an attendant to the people that were having the meeting, but I was there. And all the meeting, he talked about security. That's all he talked about. 
because he's very wealthy and it's dangerous in Mexico. And he just talked about security. In heaven, you don't have to talk about security. Verse 25, in verse 20, chapter 22 and verse 5. In chapter 27, the Bible says, No sin and no sinners. There shall be by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But get this, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the obvious thing, I would be practicing pastoral malpractice right now if I didn't say to you, so is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? No, wait, wait, wait. I know, you're, I know what you're saying. You're thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus, Jesus, I believe in Jesus. No, I didn't say, didn't say that. The people who are written in the Lamb's book of life are overcomers. They're not, they're not professors. They're not people that know the right little, you know, uh, formula to say, Jesus and so forth. They're actually people who have been transformed by God and they're being transformed. They're not characterized by sin, but they're characterized by righteousness. And Jesus is their king and Jesus is their Lord. And the proof of that is they're overcomers. Is that you? Because those are the only people that are going to populate this place. And so right now today, wouldn't it be wonderful if you just said, I'm going to take care of that right now. I'm going to see to it my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. Right? Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You say, but you don't understand how broken I am. You don't understand how guilty I am. You don't understand how confused I am. He said, whosoever will may come. That's what he said. So you want to come? Come. And you say, oh, here I am, just as I am, right? Just as I am. This is me, God. You know me. I can't fake you out. I can't lie. I can't hide. I don't want to. But, it's, but, but I want my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I want to know that when this toil filled, trouble-filled, sad earth is over. There's going to be a place of paradise with me and you together where I no longer wrestle with sin anymore. That can be you. Throw yourself upon the Lord today. There's a beautiful, beautiful hymn. I love it. Um, and and there's, a, there's a phrase in it. From earth's wide bounds to, to the ocean's farthest shore, uh, or coast, through gates of pearl, stream through the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, stream through a countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Will you be in that? People from all over the world are going to stream through the gates of pearl to God. And no more are they going to struggle with the things that just break our hearts right now. It's going to be over. Jesus is going to take over and he's going to run everything. And he's going to allow us to be a part of that. The most important thing in the whole world is that you see to it that you're a part of that group. Through the grace of Christ Jesus that he is your Savior and Lord. Those are the only people that are going to be there. And then verse 22 uh, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding fruit every month, leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. A picture of a river like this. A river, and it's not a river of water. of It's a river of water of life. And the, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. The idea here is... Life, full and abundant life and, and absolute satisfaction to all of our longings. This is the picture that is in heaven. Think about this. We used to live in Flint. They, they say the water is not that, that, not, not that good in Flint. I guarantee you the water in the Flint River wasn't good. We were up there in the hotel looking down one day and Chuck saw a guy that lived on the street and he was thirsty. And he was just sitting there watching him. And Chuck comes down to me and he says, Dad, do you mind if we go to Checkers and get a guy some food? Because I just saw him get up and take a styrofoam cup and dip it in the Flint River and drink it. You say, oh, I'd never drink water from the Flint River. No, yours is the Detroit water supply. That doesn't go to Flint, right? They can't have that nice Detroit water. All of the water on earth in every major city of America and every other place on earth is corrupt and it won't satisfy this water will satisfy you forever the longings that god put in your heart the deepest longings that you have will be satisfied okay so so give me a minute here okay uh 
holiday weekend, so I get a little minute, right? So the, think of this. The deepest longings of your heart, uh, the promise is that the deepest longings of your heart will be satisfied forever by God. Did you hear that? The deepest longings of your heart that you have right now will be satisfied forever by God. C.S. Lewis, in the book that I was reading, the Mere Christianity book, in the little chapter on hope, wrote about this in such a, a lucid way. I want to I read a part of it uh, to you. And what he says here is he's talking about longings. And here's what he says. Here's his little argument. He says, the presence of longings in your heart is proof that the thing you're longing for exists. All right? Did you get that? The, the fact that you long for something proves that it exists. And then he goes on in a famous passage and says, if I find in my heart there's a longing that nothing in this earth can satisfy, then it must mean that I was made for another world. Now get this, right? Do you have longings that are unsatisfied? I know the answer to that question. Of course you do. Nothing you ever did fully satisfied you. Oh, there was pleasure in it, there was joy, but it, but it didn't fully satisfy you, right? The Bible teaches here with this river of life, the idea is that God is going to fully and completely satisfy us. C.S. Lewis says when people realize that they're not satisfied by things on earth, there are, there are a couple of three things they can do. One of the things he said is, what, what he called it, he said, the fool's way. He said, the fool's way is to go from one thing to another trying to find satisfaction. Like, you know, if your marriage isn't satisfying, after a while you just go, this isn't working, I'm going to go find somebody else. Or, or you know, you, you, you indulge in, you know, food or drink or, or sex or, or materialism or, or just workaholic, whatever it is, and you don't find your longings, you just go to another one and you try that. that C.S. Lewis called that the fool's way. Because he's looking to fulfill his longings in things, a series of things, none of which will fulfill him. Then he said, then there's the common man's way. This is powerful. The common man's way. The common person says, well, those were just childish longings that I had anyway. And then he says, uh, I think C.S. Lewis has an inimitable way of putting that. It's like those were just dreams of moonshine. And we should put away our childish dreams of moonshine. And by that, he's not talking about liquor they make in the mountains. He's just saying, you know, just like kind of uh, ethereal longings that are childish. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. This is what the Bible says. And that's this. God puts longings in us. They are evidence that there is satisfaction for those longings. And those longings aren't going to be satisfied on earth as we make our way through whatever the earth has to offer. And they won't be satisfied by us just trying to suppress them and say they're not there and they're not really grown up. C.S. Lewis says the Christian way is this, is to recognize that those longings were put there as foreshadowings of things to come to cause us to long for heaven. Those things that are put there, that, that amazing haunting feeling that you get when you watch a sunset or the intimacy of marriage or the joy of a little baby born into your family or a good meal with friends, all those are God tugging on your longings to tug you to Him so that you would recognize that He is the giver of all good and perfect gifts and that you can be with Him forever in heaven in unbroken bliss, in a complete state of joy and peace and security and fulfillment. And so Lewis says it like this. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. And in other places where C.S. Lewis writes, he calls this the shadows, the shadow land. So here's what he says. He says, here's how he describes this longing for heaven. He describes it like this. And you see this all through the Chronicles of Narnia when he writes about this. He describes our present world. We look at our present world as the real world. And then we look at the eternal state as something kind of ethereal and not real. He says it's quite the opposite. The world we live in now are shadows, echoes, mirages, foreshadowings of the eternal thing, which is the real. And we live in what he calls the shadow lands. Now that makes sense, right? 
that makes sense of everything, when I'm making my way through life never fully satisfied because God put a, a longing in my heart to seek Him. And heaven and God in heaven is the satisfaction of that. And this is interesting. He said, if you have a sense of something missing, he didn't say this, I wrote this about that. If you have a sense of something missing, that means there's something more. But to finish this, there's no more curse, only blessing everywhere. No more, verse 20, uh, chapter 22 and verse 3, no more curse, only blessing everywhere. Chapter 22 and verse 4, no more separation or distance, only unbroken, unfettered fellowship. Amazing, huh? preaching about heaven one one day and I was feeling bad for myself because one of my daughters lived on the other side of Lake Michigan. And I mentioned it in my message and I said, you know, my daughter got married and she moves on the other side of Lake Michigan. I have to go see her. I got to go through Chicago. It's a big hassle. Gary, Gary Haynes, on the way out, he said, well, my Sarah, who passed away when she's 12, is in heaven. And I never forgot that but he's going to see her again. And they'll be reunited again. And they'll have eternal life together again. Oh, there's something about that separation that's just so sad and so painful. The fear of death, the fear of that separation, the, the longing that we have for love that never just gets fulfilled. God is the one who created that, and God is the one who will fulfill that, and he will do it in heaven by, with, with himself. How beautiful is that? And then you have chapter 22, verse 5. Oh, by the way, did I mention no more night, right? Only the glory, the great glory of God. Okay, now, now just think for a minute. Think of John, the apostle, the guy who wrote this. Think of John, the apostle. Get yourself in his brain just a little bit, right? A couple of things. In John's lifetime, what did he do that you and I have never done? He saw Jesus. He touched Jesus. He put his head on Jesus' chest. They were close. He was there when Jesus made breakfast. He was there when Jesus healed people that were sick. He was there when Jesus cast out demons. He was in the inner circle, transfiguration. John was with Jesus. So when he says, we're going to be with Jesus again, for him, this was a very powerful thing. But listen, what did John say about that? Wouldn't you love it if you, had, if you had seen Jesus, if you had eaten with Jesus, if you, if you had seen him resurrected, if you had... Put your hand in his side. What did John write about that? He said this. He, he recorded Jesus saying, You've seen, and therefore you believe. But there's a special blessing for those who haven't seen, and yet they choose to believe. So I say, God, I want that blessing. I haven't seen you. John saw you, but I haven't seen you. I want to see you. I want to know you're real. I want to know you're true. I want to be with you forever. I'm going to trust you that what you said, I'm going to keep, I'm going to take your promises. I'm going to push away my doubt. I'm going to embrace my faith. I'm going to believe in you. Think about who John, there's another thing that John saw that we didn't see. 25 years before this, John watched one of the most tragic things that ever happened on planet Earth. He watched Jerusalem destroyed. He watched the temple raised. He watched the temple defiled. Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion, destroyed. And John now is on Patmos. And he goes, look at this. That is a new heaven. That is a new earth. And that is a new Jerusalem. And it looks like a bride coming down from God in heaven. The new Jerusalem, God satisfies the desire. Notice this here, and this is my conclusion, so don't, don't get all worried. Notice this, this is really quick. What, what, what can we look for in heaven? Well, restoration, renewal, regeneration. Everything new, everything fresh, everything right. We look forward to complete fulfillment and satisfaction. Amen. We look forward to pleasure and peace and joy and holiness in a, in a, in a, in a context of good and right and honorable we look forward to reunion. Not just reunion, but reunion into unbroken relationships. You ever have somebody tell you this? Hey, when you get saved, your problems are going to go away. You have little happy songs like that, you know? And now I am happy all the day. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. I'm watching you. You're not happy all the day. Sometimes you're just downright crabby britches, right? <laughs> Come on. Me too, right? Yeah. Why is that? 
You know, I heard a guy say it this way. He says, if we were to tell the truth, it's not like I got, I, you know, I used to have 50 problems, and then I got saved, and now I don't have any problems at all. I don't have any more temptations, any more problems, any more brokenness, any more hurt. Here's what it's really like. I used to have 50 problems, and I got saved. Now I only have 35. I'm making problems. It's really true, right? Are, are you saved? Right? Are you, are you trouble-free? Of course not. Are your relationships just totally fulfilling all the time? Did your wife always bring you breakfast in bed like you imagined she would when you got married? That's what I thought. The wife goes, don't even bring this up. The other day I decided I'd mow the lawn, you know, because I'm heroic like that. And, and uh, last year, Lois calls me and she says, I'm going to hire somebody to mow the lawn. And then I go, I thought you liked doing it. <laughs> That's really the truth. It's really the small lawn, and she mows it. So she calls, she says, I'm going to hire somebody with a lawn. And I literally go, oh, seriously? I thought you liked doing it, because, I mean, I don't do it, right? Now you're not going to listen to me anymore, right? And so I go, we don't have to hire somebody. I mean, I can mow the lawn. She goes, no, no, you're busy. I, I'd just rather hire somebody. So you hire somebody to mow the lawn, and I feel emasculated. You know, some guy comes and mows my lawn like, like I can't walk or something. So this year, I got a drop on that, you know? I got out there and, you know, got the... I actually got the lawnmower started and everything, uh, which yeah, wasn't easy. Um, and I, and I'm, I've been sitting on top of the lawn. I got it a little low this week, didn't I? You, you didn't criticize me. I know you didn't like that. Got it a little too low. But I'm mowing the lawn, doing it by myself, you know. It's kind of it's humorous, isn't it, that we have relationships with people that we love the very most in the world, that we're the closest to and the very closest to in the whole world. And in those relationships, there's still like a little something missing misunderstandings, right, brokenness, hurts, not in heaven, no more. We're not going to be reunited. It's not going to be like you're going to have a reunion with your pesky brother-in-law and now you've got to live with him forever. <laughs> it's like that would, that's the other place. This is heaven we're talking about, right? This is you're reunited with your brother-in-law and the dude is finally in his glorified state. So you can stand talking to him now. Everybody roots for the Buckeyes there. And then, just kidding. That never works. Why do I do that? And then face-to-face communion with God. So there you have it. He is our king. Now let me ask you, this morning, we're going to sing and pray, and we're going to be on our way. Now let me ask you this morning, anything I said, like, stir you up inside a little bit? I wouldn't want to miss heaven for anything in the world. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a beautiful song about heaven. And then we've asked one of our men, Mike, is going to come in. He's going to close in prayer. And then I'm going to stay right here in the front. And I'm hoping to maybe arrange some conversations with any of you who know you need to make sure that heaven is your home. So I'll be back here at the end of the service. And we're going to sing and Mike's going to pray. And then I'll, I'll come back here.